Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. This is the Roy Green Show podcast. The video of former Toronto Mayor Rob Ford was released, as you know. And uh, there's been a great deal of emotional response. And a lot of it has had to do with why now? Why not then? Why now? And I'll tell you what I remember most. And I don't like the fact the video was released now. What I remember was words that are attributed to the former mayor that were not in that video. And that became, with those words, in some stories, many stories, became the basics, the fundamentals of other stories. And now we know that Mayor Ford, and it was a difficult, difficult video to watch. It was a man who was struggling, but he did not, as was reported. I'll went back and I have the story. He did not reference Justin Trudeau as a, using a homophobic slur. And he did not say effing minorities. I'm going to say this just before I speak with his brother, Doug. When I remember Rob Ford, it will not be because of the headline stories. It will not be because of the video. What I will remember about Rob Ford is when the former mayor stood quietly with reporters and talked about the metastasizing of his cancer and the return of his cancer. That is what I will remember. Doug Ford joins me on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Doug, how are you? I'm doing all right, Roy. How, how are you making out? We're, we're just out uh, in Scarborough here in, in Toronto canvassing today for, for Raymond Joe. So I'm keeping, keeping busy. How's your family? Um, they're, they're doing all, all right. It's, it's tough right now. It's tough on Rob's kids. It's tough on uh, my mother and and uh, Renata, his wife, and I guess everyone. Just uh, after the the situation uh, happened happened the other day. So, what do you want to say, Doug? If you uh, have an opportunity to talk to the people who took great joy in um, tearing apart your brother. Uh, and and that video was not available, and there was a lot of talk and conjecture about the video. The opportunity was there to buy it. It wasn't purchased. But things were said and written about what apparently were in the video, and they weren't. What do you want to say, Doug? What what, what do you want to say as his brother? Well, it's it's disturbing, to say the least, and it should raise eyebrows uh, to the whole country on, on what uh, sometimes gets gets reported. There isn't any ethnic, uh, ethics involved, and there's no... Uh, I guess no one uh, has uh, any morals <laughs> anymore, and that doesn't. Uh, I'm not going to paint a broad brush across 
I mean, you because that's not the case. It's a it's a, a group of them that uh, that just uh, really had a dislike on for for Rob, and uh, it's unfortunate because I, I know if uh, someone lied in our company or your company, and you went on the air, you'd be taken to task, Roy. And uh, I guess uh, the Star and the Global Mail have two different, uh, you know, ethic uh, ethics. <laughs> that's that's really what it comes down to. Well, did anybody call you over the last couple of days to say, I'm sorry? No. I mean, they, they'd never do that, Roy. They've, uh, you know, they've lied in the past, and uh, it's just unfortunate. I just wish they'd let Rob uh, rest in peace. And, and um, you know, I, I, I go out every day and, and no less than 25, 30, 40 people, even, even more, come up to me and... Uh, Tell me how much they miss Rob and, and what a great job he did, which is uh, true. He was a great mayor. He cared for the people. He took care of the finances of the city and uh, uh, made a lot of positive changes for the, the average person. I didn't want to watch uh, the video, Doug. I really didn't want to, and I, I didn't watch it actually until yesterday. And I felt mm-hmm. I should. If I was going to be talking to you and talking about the what has happened in the last week, I felt I should watch it. Mm-hmm. And, and what I saw was... What I saw was a man who was obviously struggling, mm-hmm. and 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 I, I I started to think about you know the the Jimmy Kimmel show and and, and I, all the things that were said and, and and written, and it should have been obvious to people that there was an issue going on. There was an issue in in your brother's life, but as you said, he was elected to do a job, and to the best of his ability, and there'll be people who disagree with me. But to the best of his ability, he was trying to get that job done. Uh, he was, and that was later in the in the term. This wasn't from the, the get-go. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, Rob still uh, returned 40, 50, 60 calls a day and and uh, would visit people at 8, 9, 10 o'clock at night, even later, and and uh, help them any way they can. can. But, uh, yes, he, he, uh, he came out and admitted that he had a problem. He went to go get help, and I was proud of him. And... And uh, straightened his uh, his issue out in his life, and then uh, got stricken with uh, cancer. Right. So, you know, it was uh, it was a tough road for the last uh, few years. The thing to remember is, people elected him, and they elected him because they believed in him, and they believed that he would do what they what he said he would do. And that's why and he, he was that was why he was elected to office. That's why you were elected to office. That's right, Ryan. He's one of the few uh, politicians that uh, did what he said he was going to do, and the. Uh, and he did it. So, you know, I, I, I'm proud of Rob. I'll always be proud of him, and uh, I'll stand by this. That he was the best, best mayor ever, on many different aspects. What have people said to you over the last couple of days, Doug? Well, they they thought it was uh, unnecessary. Uh, there was no reason outside of, uh, I guess they, they had to cut a cut of deal with uh, Mr. Lisi there, and and uh, you know, all, what I don't understand how ten over ten million dollars were spent of taxpayers' money. And there was never a charge laid on Rob, or never a charge uh, was dropped on Lisi. So I, I have to really question that. Rob always, always uh, believed it was uh, vicious politics, and and uh, you know that, that's that's what happens sometimes. I think ultimately, though, people will decide how they will remember your brother, and and under what circumstances they will remember your brother. And I would like to think that the majority of people will not use that video as any sort of measuring stick for who your brother was and and what he did and why he was elected. 
I, I like I said to you, I will remember him quietly standing with with media and talking about his health and what his reality was. That is what I will remember about Rob Ford and yeah, well, and the I, conversations I had with him. Yeah, and you. Well, Roy, I remember him because I get endless people coming up and uh, telling me how they helped him. I, I again, there's no a municipal. Uh, provincial federal politician that touched more lives, went to more doors, made more phone calls, and cared about the people than uh, Rob did. And he was passionate, and the people loved him for it. And no matter what what, uh, political stripe you were on, because everyone had this uh, notion that Rob uh, got elected in by conservatives. That wasn't the case at all. He he was a populist uh, mayor, and he got uh, voted in from everyone from the Green Party, uh, the NDP, the Liberals, and uh, the fiscal conservatives. You talk about the other politicians and the other parties or the allegiances they have. Have other politicians from other, if you will, other than conservative philosophical allegiances been in touch with you this week? No, no, no one has. Um, so, but the people have. Uh, we've had endless emails, endless phone calls, and uh, that's all we care about. Uh, that's what we, we don't worry about the other politicians. Uh, we worry about the people and make, making sure uh, when they still call our office that we help them uh, help them out. I'm, I'm not even elected, and I get probably 25, 30 calls a day on every issue you can possibly think of. And uh, I'll return every phone call and help them uh, to the best of my ability. Anything you want to say, Doug? Anything in conclusion that, that you want people to know, people to hear? Well, you know, Roy, people are, uh, you know, people are going to judge Rob uh, the way they, they want to. Uh, the media, uh, certain media, are going to judge him in a negative fashion. But uh, I know there's uh, tens of thousands of people that he helped out. And, uh, and he did a great job in the city. And there'll never be a, another, uh, another politician like him, ever. Never, ever. Thanks for taking the time to talk to me, Doug. I, I don't like the fact that that video came out now. There was it, it served no purpose publicly, and but it's but it's there. Well, they they had they had a broker the deal, right? So that, that just shows what Rob always believed. Rob always said it was political, and it was just proven the other day. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Doug. That's great. Thanks so much. Bye bye, Doug Ford. You're listening to the Roy Green Show weekends from two to five on AM nine hundred CHML. My good friend Joe Warmington, who's one of the best reporters and columnists and most ethical journalists in this country, I have such respect for him, and we're personal friends. Um, I got an email from Joe a couple of minutes ago, and I asked him to call in. Joe, thank you very much. What, 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 what's your response? What's your, what are you thinking uh, about this, about this whole issue with that video and 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 Rod yeah. Ford? Well, first of all, Roy, it's just a. Uh, Good to hear you, and you, as usual, have it right. And you just tell by your emotion today how disgusted you are with all of it. There's a lot of things at play here, uh, everything from a conspiracy to take a guy down from his elected position as mayor to, you know, yellow journalism. I guess that's the nicest way to say it. It's false journalism. And then just, just basic disrespect and dishonesty and the abuse of power of the police, uh, you know, particularly Chief Blair, to use the police to try to take down somebody and all of these things that uh, Doug Ford mentioned 10 million dollars I hadn't heard that figure but I heard six million I've also heard four million anyway that money would be well but be- uh, much better spent on the people that Rob Ford tried to help in uh, community housing than to chase around a couple of guys uh, having a puff off of a pipe and blowing off steam on their own time in private residences or what have you and so 
it, it, that's what I think. I'm, you know, I'm pretty offended by it as a, a Canadian and as someone that was close to this story and taking a lot of hits on it uh, from these, uh, a lot of these journalists who actually threatened me as well for trying to tell the truth and to be honest and to, to be a good journalist and, and to be fair, as we try to do. Critical is fine. I was critical of Rob Ford lots of times, but I didn't torque it like they did. Uh, they lied. They didn't tell the truth. And they're not, that, that's bad. But what's really bad, Roy, is they're not prepared to say, look, I'm sorry. Just yeah. like you mentioned the apology tour. Where is it? What Where is it? There? Where is it exactly? Where's the apology? If you're going to quote from a video, if you're going to quote from it, and, and then later on say, well, we didn't, you know, years later, well, we didn't have the time to, uh, you know, to, to, to do the, to take the notes, and we didn't have the right to take notes. But you actually quoted from it. And, yeah, uh, and those quotes an are not there. It's not an excuse. And I'll tell you something. Prime Minister Harper is sitting there going, well, you know, I lost the election because Rob Ford came to my final rally there because it, you know, it, it was not clear what was going to happen. He was right there neck and neck. And, you know, to his credit, Prime Minister Trudeau used that and said, look, how could you be with this homophobic guy who used that F-A-G word to describe me? Well, it turns out he never said that. He never said, you know, effing minorities and all these things that, that he was attributed to say. Well, even the, the business of the pipe, I mean, they keep calling it a, a crack pipe. I don't know if it is. I don't know what he I don't there. either. And, uh, you know, Rob himself, before he died, he told me, I wrote a column on this. You can find it on com, where he said he doesn't even know what, what he took a puff off of there. He really doesn't. He just sort of felt so much pressure. He thought, I'll give them what they want to hear. He told me that. You know, I'll just say, yeah, I smoked it, and then they'd they leave him alone because after a day or two, like the excellent callers are saying about Elizabeth May and all kinds of other people, you know, including people that are in Parliament now that are having trouble. And so, you know what, they did it. It was an assassination job. The question I have for Bill Blair, in addition to the millions spent, uh, you know, I wonder if he would pay it back. But secondly, why did he not clarify this video when, you know, he, he saw it. He, he saw it. He bragged in the middle of the whole thing that he saw it, yeah. which I'd never seen before. Yeah. But he said, look, he didn't say those things, though. Yeah, he had a pipe. Uh, I, I, I will never understand that. I don't even know. I mean, he needs. you should get him on your show, perhaps. I mean, you have the kind of pull. He might come on with you. No. Uh, but, you know, it's not right what happened here, Roy. It isn't right, and he won't come on the show, and you're absolutely correct, Joe. He saw the video. He made a big deal out about us seeing the video. Those quotes, he's aware, Blair was aware, those quotes were being used against Rob Ford, and they weren't. he was aware that they weren't, they weren't, they weren't in the video. And, and even now, who's apologizing? Nobody. What's really something, though, is that there's no real media now. The Liberal Party, and, and I respect a lot of people that are Liberal Party people, as you know, very uh, many, many good ones. But there is a group of them that are in there that are controlling radio, they're controlling newspapers, you're not allowed to write this, you can't say that, there's a memo here, don't do that. And what happens is that it's very, very difficult to get what's right here. But if you can go after and, and actually quote Rob Ford saying that you know he hated the minorities that he was coaching, that stuck with him, and that hurt him because he, he was so afraid that he had said that. He told me he didn't think he'd say that, but he was so blacked out. He, who knows? And then, of course, the other thing about the homophobia stuff, that stuff sticks with you. And yet you can't turn around and say, hey, wait a minute. Why don't you, uh, why don't you do something to make amends here? I have never seen this in journalism in my 30 years. I'd never seen checkbook journalism before. I mean, I'd never seen reporters meeting in with guys that are now in jail for guns and extortion. 
before and trying to buy a video of a guy. Why didn't they just go to the guy and say, look, here's what we have. What do you want to do about it? You want to talk about it? I mean, if I had seen this video, that's what I would have done. I would have called Rob and I would have talked to him. I would have written the story, whether he liked it or not. And eventually he would go into rehab. That's exactly what happened later with the video I did obtain and didn't pay for of him talking about his wife and Karen Stintz, etc. The one that did put him into rehab. Anyway, they did it. The damage is done, Roy. It's disgusting. I don't know what more to say than that. Joe, you did it the right way. You did it the correct way. And uh, and others did not, and they have to they have to live with what they've done. And uh, they, they, they should they they, they need to step up and they need to admit what they did. They need to apologize. And Bill Blair, who is now on still on the public payroll as a federal minister, has a responsibility to step up and say, I should have cleared the record there because I knew what it was because as you said he bragged about seeing the video so and the other thing too everybody forgets or many people forget but I don't this was all because of the overall movement to get him out as mayor what they did was he raised three thousand dollars for his football charity put it on the city letterhead he should not have done that slap on the wrist and perhaps he should have just said I'm sorry and and did it but he decided to fight them on it and they came after him with the best lawyer Clay Ruby and all of that and they actually had his job taken away from him. And that was around Christmas time of that, right. that year. This video is in February when it was shot. He was at the darkest, most melancholy point of his life because he was looking in the mirror going, I blew the mayor of Toronto. They took the job from him until about two months later when it was reversed by a, a higher court judge who was kind of offended that somebody could come along and say, even though you're elected, oh, by the way, we can take it from you for for raising money for to help kids out that uh, you know need help. I'd never heard of that before either. Anyway, look, at they did what they did. Uh, they've got control of all the offices of power now. They've got control of most of the media, but they haven't shut you up, Roy. They haven't shut me up. And good luck uh, trying. Good luck trying. Joe, thank you so much. Thanks for everything you do, and thanks for the reporting that you did on Rob Ford. It thanks was for honest. having me on today. I was just listening was on, honest. Uh, with my little boy, and uh, we were listening to you, and uh, it was just incredible. I just hear the, the, the pain in your voice there, and... Uh, that's why I sent you the note. I knew I knew that it was affecting you, and I know it's personal because of the cancer part of it. Yeah. And I know you've been through your own struggles, Roy, and it's not easy for you. Um, but it, it, I think you're offended as well that you could actually have journalists make up quotes and ruin a man's life and like this, and just you know not even care. And I called I Joe at, at the time. This was all really going a thousand miles an hour. I called Jane Kirtley. She's a media ethics professor at the University of Minnesota. And if somebody says, well, she's American, what does she know about Canada? She's done media ethics work in this country as well. And she specifically uh, reviewed everything that was going on, Joe. And she came down hard on certain organizations. And you know which ones they are without my saying Toronto Star particularly. Kevin Donovan, Robin Doolittle, they're good people, good reporters. They made a horrible mistake at worst or best. Or they torque this thing at worst. I don't know what the hell their reasoning were. They should come out and own up to it. Apologize to the Ford family, to his kids, to his wife, to his mother, to all the readers, to their editors, all the reporters they work with, to the police, to everybody. They owe an apology. And you know what? Until they get it, until until somebody says to them, look at, look at, there's nobody else that would get away with this anywhere in journalism. Every reporter listening to this show, and I know they listen, know that they can't go and say the mayor of Vancouver said this, and it turns out it wasn't true, and then still have a job, or at least, you know, some... I mean, I don't want them to lose their jobs, but 
they certainly should be reprimanded for it. But I think an apology is what people are looking for. And I, I was just at a funeral, fortunately, in Bowmanville for a 91-year-old woman who was a friend of mine's uh, mom, a great lady, the whole thing. And I had 20 people come up to me, Roy, that just recognized me that said they, they're disgusted with what was said about Rob Ford. And in addition to that, why was this video even showing after he's dead? Exactly. And so, you know what, people get it. Joe, thank you. Thank you, Roy. As always, thank you. Joe Warmington, Toronto Sun, one of the really, really good ones. One of the very best ones. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Uh, among his major headline-creating statements this week, Republican Party presidential candidate Donald Trump included that Barack Obama is the founder of ISIS. Well, how was ISIS created, and what circumstances led to the uh, actually the creation of this vicious terror organization? Colonel Peter Mansour is with us, former executive officer to General David Petraeus, commanding general in, of coalition forces in Iraq. Uh, Colonel uh, Mansour is um, military history chair and professor of uh, military history at Ohio State University. He's the author of Surge, My Journey with General David Petraeus and the Remaking of the Iraq War. We've spoken with Colonel Mansour on a number of occasions on this program. And Colonel Mansour, good to have you back with us. Oh, thanks, Roy. Great to be back. So I understand uh, you're a lifelong Republican who's declared your intention to vote for Hillary Clinton. Yeah, it'll be the first time in my uh, my voting life. I voted for every Republican presidential candidate from Reagan to Romney, but I just can't pull the lever for uh, Donald Trump, unfortunately. I think he would be a disaster as president. So is it the sort of statement that Mr. Trump made this week about President Obama being responsible for ISIS? Is that the sort of thing you're talking about? Well, I just think that goes along with his entire personality. He speaks... Um, uh, whatever comes to the top of his mind, he's uh, he's uh, he's opinionated and uh, and doesn't take time to think through the implications of what he says. And as a result, uh, if he were president, he would uh, he would ruin our foreign relations, uh, saying things that alienate our allies and embolden our enemies. And unfortunately, uh, you can't have a president that shoots from the hip and doesn't think through his actions. Mr. Trump says that uh, Barack Obama is the founder of ISIS, and and you and I have talked about, and you actually you explained to to us, my to me, and my listeners, about ISIS and how it was formed, and it had a lot to do, did it not, with Mr. Obama's policies of not supporting the continuation of the surge and creating the environment which allowed ISIS to grow from a splinter group into what it is today. And I'm not trying to make the nexus between what you've decided and and uh, and, and what I just said. Well, I, I actually just think you, you nailed it. And had Donald Trump come out and said that, then there would be no, I think, no issue with what he, what he said. Um, but he went further and said that, that President Obama is the founder of ISIS, something I think that Ob- Abu Omar al-Baghdadi, the actual founder of ISIS, would take uh, exception to, if he could rise from the grave, that is, since we killed him in an airstrike uh, a couple years ago. Uh, but you're right. Uh, you know, we had... Al-Qaeda in Iraq, the forerunner to ISIS on the run after the surge, and missteps by the Obama administration, primarily their backing of Nouri al-Maliki in the election of 2010 when he didn't win the election, and then the uh, withdrawal of U.S. forces from Iraq in 2011, which was a natural outgrowth of of that, I think uh, created the 
conditions in the environment uh, where ISIS could come back into Iraq uh, and make the headway that they did in 2014. How dangerous, literally dangerous, to the world's stability is ISIS now? Well, perhaps uh, more dangerous than when they uh, were on the ascendancy and were building this caliphate because eventually this caliphate is going to be destroyed. Uh, Mosul should fall within a matter of months. Eventually, Raqqa will fall. Uh, but then what happens with ISIS is it's scattered now among the nations, and it becomes almost a pure terrorist guerrilla organization, much like al-Qaeda, and it will focus its sights squarely on attacking the West. Um, I still think it needs to be crushed because no one likes a, a loser, and it will uh, it will dim the appeal of this organization to would-be jihadis. But uh, make no mistake about it, it will still be a very potent terrorist organization after Iraq and Syria are dealt with. Carol Mansour, I have one more question for you. Hillary Clinton, uh, she has her own issues. She's known to have lied specifically. She dodged a a federal uh, felony indictment. What concerns do you have about her as president of the United States? I have huge concerns uh, about her as a as a candidate. She's a very weak candidate. I, I'm not obviously not a fan of her domestic policies. I'm a I'm a conservative when it comes to economic uh, and financial issues and budget issues. You know, look, I, I'm under no illusions that Hillary Clinton is a wonderful candidate, but she is ready to step into the Oval Office. She's been right. in that arena. I think she's thoughtful when it comes to uh, considering the advice of others, where Donald Trump, uh, by his own admission, is his own best advisor. Colonel Mansour, I'm going to have to stop you because I did a lousy job with the clock again. Okay. Thank you well, so thanks much for, for the time. Me on. Thanks you. Thank you for the time. The Surge is the name of Colonel Mansour's book. We're coming back after this. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Aaron Driver, the name that you've heard time and again over the last several days across this country. ISIS supported living in uh, Strathroy, Ontario, under a terrorism peace bond. He, uh, he died in Strathroy after a confrontation with the RCMP. And following the explosion of a device in a taxi that a Driver had called, there are lots of questions that remain about his actions, his uh, identification, and his death. And one of the questions is, how did a taxi get through the police tight security around the house to where Driver was living? There are a lot of questions, a lot of issues that need to, uh, to be dealt with, and a number of questions were asked of Strathroy uh, municipal officials by residents um, last night or the night before. Scott Newark, former security advisor to the federal and Ontario governments following 9-11. He's the vice chair of operations for the National Security Group and co-authored a view from the front, which led to the arming of Canada's border guards. As you know, Scott joins us on this program regularly. Former Crown Attorney in Alberta has done uh, many things, including being a senior policy advisor to the federal public safety minister, so, Scott, what is the, um, what's the first issue, the first question that needs to be dealt with when we're looking at the history of Aaron Driver? Here's a guy who had this peace bond, terrorism-related. Uh, his, his ankle bracelet uh, was ordered removed by a judge. Um, there's so many questions that, that, that are just floating around in, in my brain. What, what, what do you want to know first and foremost? Well, um, 
Actually, I, I wrote a brief piece for the uh, Frontline Security magazine about this because after an incident like this, there is always what's known as a debrief where um, the operational authorities, the RCMP, will sit down and they'll go through all of the, the kinds of issues that you just mentioned, uh, including some of the stuff that's still actually ongoing, like what was the actual cause of death. It's not entirely clear whether it was the explosion that killed them or whether or not it, whether it was actually shots fired by the police. They're going to want to take a look at the specifics of the uh, of the wiring of the uh, the bomb equipment that may lead them to uh, provide some clues as to whether he had some assistance or not, those kinds of operational things. But the part that I was writing about was more about the larger systemic issues because, uh, look, this was a tremendous success from uh, the operational perspective of the RCMP and the OPP and local police services in being able to stop this uh, murderous terrorist. Uh, and that needs to be recognized. But you also want to sit down and ask the kinds of questions that, that you've raised and that indeed the people uh, who were in that community have raised. And I think the one, if I was to start with one, um, it was uh, the fact that the RCMP learned about this uh, on Wednesday morning at approximately 8.30 in the morning when they got information from the FBI that this guy had posted uh, this uh, video. It's not clear exactly you know what forum it was on but the information came to our national police force from the fbi and um you know so where were our guys right well and that's exactly the point it, it's a little more complicated than that because the issue for me is does that mean that the fbi for example has access to sites that our people don't and why is that? Is that a technical issue? Is there a legal issue? Is it a resource issue? But I'll tell you something that, and I've dealt with this cross-border information sharing as well, too. Um, this is a sign of real um, operational leadership on the part of the RCMP because uh, they had a uh, relationship with the FBI such that the FBI provided them that information. All too often in my experience, and I've, I have, I've had direct experience in this, where you have on national security cases, um, I, I literally experienced this when I worked in Washington, uh, where they say, well, you know, um, we don't need any uh, information from anybody else because we have everything that's important because we're, you know, the, uh, the organization, so we don't want to take anything from anybody else. And good leadership recognizes, think of it almost as an insurance policy, that you want to make sure that just in case we don't have everything, we have a good relationship with other people so that we can get the information. And that's what clearly happened here. But it does raise questions about uh, if there are things we can, And that's the way to approach this, not finger-pointing or anything else, but are there things we can learn from this so as to improve our capabilities? Exactly. I mean, I you, you, you get a call from the FBI in the morning, and they say, hey, guys, maybe you should know about this. Well, in the video, he openly and specifically uh, threatens Canada. That he's right. going to carry out his attack in Canada. Right. No, I understand that. But yeah. then you get get the call from the FBI saying, "We think you should know know about this." And then that, I guess, I go back to the the question: Who did the radicalizing? Um, we have some clips. I don't know if the studio has the clips ready. Um, if we do, I'll assume that we do. Can we play the first clip, please, where 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 Aaron Driver's father? talks about, uh, Wayne talks about his right. son as a child. Can we play that? Or should we hold on and, and come back to that in a bit? Let's come to, back, let's come to that in a bit. Uh, after the break, we'll, uh, we'll play these clips 
from uh, okay, well, Wayne Driver. On the, on the subject is the. It's also clear that the FBI didn't know who the guy was. So that suggests to me that, for example, we do not yet have a sufficient uh, bad guy uh, face recognition biometric database in place. It looks as though the RCMP did, and I've seen it reported that, in fact, that was the case, where they were able to identify this guy through face recognition biometrics, although, you know, uh, I saw the photograph of him in the, in the video, and I had been actually following this guy's case before, and there are photographs of him in that same balaclava. So they did identify the guy. Supposedly by about around about 11 o'clock, they were satisfied who it was, and that's when the operational uh, instructions uh, kicked in, which is, again, and Roy, you've, you know, you've, you're familiar with this area as well, too. That's actually relatively impressive for, you know, an operational national police force to coordinate with all the other agencies involved with the matter of hours, get a full uh, takedown uh, situation set up. Yeah. Now, the, one, what, the question, though, and I mentioned this in the introduction, and when you and I are exchanging emails, you brought it up as, as well, Scott. How does, a, how does he order a taxi? How does a taxi get ordered and go to the to the door where he is at a time when there's tight security on him? Well, apparently they didn't know that he was even in the house, and it appears to me, based on the fact that um, they didn't know that, that that means that between when they got the notification, they were not intercepting communications, at least if it was a, a landline telephone. And don't forget, this guy was prohibited from having a cell phone or on being on the Internet, which obviously was not the case. But if they have the address and, and, and you get the alert from the FBI and you put all your resources in place to, 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 to handle the situation, isn't one of the first things you're going to do is to determine who's in the house and nope. just make a phone call? Well, Who I answers? Part of the problem was, of course, is that they, they, wanted to, they didn't want to have the guy potentially blow himself up with the officers there. They weren't sure who was in the house right. with him. Okay, there's all sorts of operational questions, which are the kinds of things that, you know, I'm sure you can count on will, will be actually asked. But it is the, the one I found probably the most disturbing of all. And I, I was very, very impressed. I don't know whether you saw it, the, uh, the media uh, uh, briefing that was given by Deputy Commissioner Mike Cabana of the RCMP on, on the Thursday, very, very candid, where they actually showed the video. Um, I was very impressed with that. But subsequent to that, I saw a, a second uh, briefing in London where the RCMP superintendent was being asked questions, including questions about, you know, well, what kind of, you know, if this guy was on this peace bond, what kind of monitoring was being done of him? That's something I would suggest should be looked into uh, much more closely. What kind of monitoring? Is, is that what you said? Yes. Okay. Why, why would, why, why, that Scott? Necessarily the electronic monitoring, but I mean, were there well, door knocks going on, you know, high, you know? Uh, well, exactly. Check, you know? Well, let me, let me ask you about the, the electron, electronic monitoring. Yeah. Why would a judge, given everything that we now know, which the judge would have been privy to as far as the background of Aaron Driver is concerned, why would a judge order the removal of the electronic monitoring equipment? Just, just to put it in context, what happened is that he was arrested in June of 2015 in Winnipeg where he was living. And it was for the purpose of entering into this peace bond. He was released on bail, and among the conditions on his bail were electronic monitoring. The, when they went back and they ultimately resolved everything, and he voluntarily agreed to enter into the peace bond, which I believe was in November of 2015, the electronic monitoring was no longer required as a condition. And wow. we don't know, though, Roy, whether or not, for example, and this is one of the questions I posed, 
did the Crown ask for electronic monitoring? Because they obviously should have. And look, it might have helped them detect where this guy was going. There's a second resident oh, in yeah. London that they're looking at. Okay, uh, maybe it would have shown us that if he was going to some kind of a, a hardware store well, to buy the equipment it, for the bombs. It, it seems to me, Scott, to be one of the most fundamental aspects of the of, of keeping tabs on uh, tabs on him. Yeah, I, I, I'm a big fan of it as well, too, and uh, I think those are the kinds of very practical questions that should be asked. Yeah, who was manipulating whom here? One of the things that uh, at the at the local uh, media conference, the, the local RCMP superintendent said, oh, you know, we never had any complaints. Uh, well, excuse me, I've been doing some research, and the London Free Press is reporting that, number one, this guy was visiting the London Muslim Mosque. Uh, was the RCMP aware of that? Did they approve that? And secondly... A guy who is uh, noted as being a lawyer and attendant at the uh, mosque, a guy named Faisal Joseph, says multiple people from the mosque called the police to alert them about the fact that this guy was making all these radical statements. That kind of contradicts with that RCMP superintendent. It does, doesn't it? Yes. Hang on. We're going to come back with Scott Newark on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. We're also going to play for you a few clips from uh, Aaron Driver's father, Wayne, about, about his son. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Scott New York is with us. Just before we talk to Scott again, let me just run you a couple of clips from Aaron Driver's father, Wayne. And this the first one is what he said about his son as a child. Aaron was the usual fun-loving seven-year-old, played with his parents, had friends, liked school. Um, it all went tumbling down when his mother died of cancer when he was seven years old. He got mad, got mad at me. He blamed me for his mother's death. He told me that he wished it was me instead of her. Uh, They were very close. Um, He just shut himself in, closed himself out to the rest of the world. It was like a light bulb went off and you couldn't turn it back on. Let's play the second clip where his father talks about CSIS watching his son. Being military, the CSIS made us aware of the file that they had on him October 2014, I believe it was. The file was over an inch thick at that time, and I saw some of the tweets and the Facebook pages that he was sharing, uh, so I was quite familiar with what was going on. Here's another one about, uh, about Aaron Driver not communicating with his father. Listen. Yes, of course we did. Uh, tried to have many different conversations with him, but I was told to mind my own business that uh, he believed in what he was believed in, and I couldn't change his mind that um, he was doing the right thing, and if he had it his way, he would move over there and forget the Western world altogether. And here's uh, his father, Wayne, Aaron Driver's father, Wayne, talking about uh, working with ISIS. Listen to this. It wasn't until he was late in his teens that he actually got involved with the ISIS. Uh, I really don't know when he started that stuff. All I know, he's converted to Islam in 2012 when he came to live with us. But before his mother's death, like I said, he was a happy, normal child. And the last clip we have is this. Listen. Yes, we did. Uh, We were hoping it wouldn't, but we realized he got more and more involved with ISIS. With by the tweets and the Facebook pages he was sharing, and you always hope that nothing bad comes of it, right? But our worst nightmares were realized. And that from our uh, our family, our global news family, those clips. Scott uh, Newark, former Crown Attorney, former Executive Director of the Canadian 
Police Association with me and uh, uh, Vice Chair of Operations for the National Security Group. When you hear that, you hear the father, what do you hear, Scott? Beyond what we heard, what do you as the expert hear? Um, not too much of terrible relevance. Um, I mean, yes, the kid obviously had some specific uh, problems, emotional problems, uh, but the reality of what we have to deal with is what uh, we are actually facing. And by all means, it's a good idea to understand. But doesn't this take you to the who did the radicalizing? Doesn't this open the door to how the radicalizing took place? Well, no, we don't know that. And, and that's the what I mean. certainly doesn't appear to have any information about that. That's well, one of the issues that I think needs to be addressed. These guys uh, make, uh, I mean, I, it's a reflection. Sounds to me like his dad does have some information if he's quizzed more. Well, it's not, it's not in there on any of the clips that you played. And I've read the stuff, and there's nothing specific in it from him. It appears as though he was probably uh, initially self-radicalized. He says that he started studying the Bible and everything, and Christianity didn't make any sense, and so he thought Islam was a better idea and everything. I think he, we, will, we will find that he was probably one of the people who was, quote, uh, largely self-radicalized. Mm-hmm. That's why I asked the question, though, about you know what particular groups or organizations or people he was involved in uh, with, uh, because some of the associations that he had, and his father didn't mention this, um, it goes back, he was uh, openly uh, supportive of the uh, Parliament Hill attack. He was uh, literally directly connected with people who were involved in April 2015, uh, a British guy who was involved in a planned terrorist attack in Australia in May 2015, right before he was actually arrested. You remember the shooting incident yeah. in uh, Texas when they were yeah. having the uh, convention about the cartoons about uh, uh, Mohammed? Um, that's another issue that's there, is that the RCMP have identified that they, although they can identify who it was he was um, speaking with right. online in social media, the uh, the communications were encrypted and they don't seem okay. to have the ability to figure out exactly what was being said. Okay, my friend, we have to stop it there. We'll talk more and talk again. Thanks, Scott. All right. Bye-bye. Scott Newark, former Crown Attorney. We're going to come back right after this. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Governments internationally and governments in this country are considering something called basic income. This is not um, EI. It's not welfare. Well, I suppose in a way it'll be considered welfare. But it's, it's an income if you lose your job because of the advancements of technology and the job disappears and anyway. Governments across the world, and in this country as well, are looking at it. And so Angus Reid polling asked Canadians about this, about how we view it, and how we feel about possibly paying more in taxes in order to fund a basic income. John Wright is a, is a fellow uh, with Angus Reid Polling. He joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. John, can you just, in, in please, more eloquently than I, than I have, explain the concept of basic income? Basic income is where governments uh, supply or ensure that uh, individuals uh, receive a basic amount of income. Um, it can range between ten and $30,000 a year. Uh, currently, there is an advisory group headed by former Senator Hugh Siegel, who has been a champion of this, who is looking at it for the Liberal government. Um, it's different than welfare, um, but it, it, it basically says that in order for a society to 
uh, ensure that all of its members are out of basic poverty and have, um, you know, a, a standard income that governments, you know, have the ability to do this. The downside, of course, is that the money's got to come from somewhere, um, and this is where you get into discussions about whether Canadians are willing to pay more taxes for this. Okay, so has it been adopted, before we ask you about specifics about what Canadians are saying, has it been adopted somewhere in the world, and is it operating reasonably well anywhere? I actually don't know the answer to that. Um, I do know that it is... uh, being talked about here now for some time as an alternative to it. When Canadians are asked about this, I can pretty well sum up the research. Um, you know, they're, they're supportive of the notion of this, right. uh, but not to its implementation. Uh, I think, you know, the headline could have read on this was a good, great idea, but a pipe dream, because Canadians, in fact, don't see this as a legitimate way to ensure that this takes place. They, you know, they they only have limited funds themselves. They see their own governments with limited funds. Paying taxes for this is just something which they don't believe is going to be possible well, or we see, uh, we, able, able to do. We, we see governments spending money they don't have, so they're spending our money, our future money. So we have your numbers show that almost two-thirds of Canadians, 63%, believe new technology is likely to eliminate more jobs than it creates. All right, so 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 we understand that jobs will disappear because of advancements in, tel- in technology. So when it comes to uh, funding... This basic income notion, what specifically are Canadians saying by numerically? What are they saying? 34% say that they would support it with more taxes. Six in 10 would say that it's too expensive. Um, and two-thirds say that this is a program which would be a disincentive to working. So it, it doesn't really, on, on the support side, it's all about the notion of this, but on the practical side, it's not something which Canadians uh, believe is, is something that could be implemented. So this would be something in addition to EI, in addition to already standard welfare practices or social assistance. Well, it would be, it could be, but it's also having a guarantee uh, for those who are uh, less fortunate in our society and maybe below the, the poverty line. I mean, this is the standard thing about you can either eliminate poverty by, uh, you know, making sure that people have jobs and they are able to move into different parts of the economy and earn the money. Uh, on the other hand, if there's nothing to really move into, um, then government can, in fact, ensure that they have a supplement which gets them above the poverty line and, and allows them to live and to move forward in a way which they can take advantage of education and other jobs. I, you know, I, I think at this stage, Roy, it's not just about, if I could just opine on this, I don't think it's just so much about people having minimum income you know, from governments on this. We have a lot of other issues that we're going to be dealing with. Forget about the debt that the governments have. But just think about retirement and, and people who are in their 50s right now looking forward who had thought that they would have anywhere between 5 and 10% return on their money when, in fact, it's been going in the opposite direction over the last few years. There's only so much money. There's going to have to be some kind of income which is guaranteed not only uh, out of their own initiative for younger people or for those losing their jobs, but also we've got a pretty heavy nut to carry when it comes to older people who are going to be moving into retirement and had hoped that they'd be able to be self-sufficient. Yeah. Yeah, there are there are so many angles to this, and I can see Canadians saying, "Yeah, I kind of like the concept, but no, I don't want to have to pay any more because I can't afford to pay any more. I don't have any more to give." John, thank you. My pleasure. Always great talking to you, John Wright, fellow with Angus Reid Polling. So the idea of a basic income, most Canadians are saying it's not really affordable. We already have EI, we have social assistance. Um, 
There'll be a lot more said about this. I think a lot of us start to look at it as a political angle that will be exploited by political parties along the way. And we'll pay for it. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.